It's the H-Dog Pod with your host, Michael the Hound Dog Harrison. Hey, welcome to episode 12 of the H-Dog Pod, the Roberto Alomar edition of the podcast. Need I say more about him? He only lifted the Blue Jays to two World Series titles. No big deal. What a beauty for sure. Speaking of beauties, I'm very excited to have on as my guest today a great analyst I work with at TSN, Bragg, former NHL player Dave Poulin, to discuss his life and career. But before I get to that, I must talk about the season of Big Brother Canada that was finally shut down amid the coronavirus pandemic. What took them so long? Honestly, every time I was watching episodes, I was thinking, what's the point? Why are they continuing to go on in this game? It wasn't even a good season to begin with. And I think it was because a lot of crew members finally decided, no, we're quitting. What's the point of us working through this? It makes no sense at all, understandably. But as I mentioned, season was not good. Uh, Two people were kicked off by production. One self-evicted. The other one essentially was self-evicting herself off the show. There was only one person who actually got voted out in that game. His name was Michael. It wasn't me. Well, I wouldn't have gotten voted off anyway, obviously. I'd win. I've tried four times for this show. Have not gotten in. Spoiler alert, have not gotten selected. But the guy's name, Michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L. That's how you, that's how you correctly spell the name Michael. He was spelled M-I-C-H-E-A-L. That's right. His parents didn't know how to spell. If you, if you can't tell, it really, really ticks me off. I remember as a kid, a lot of people would spell my name. M-I- and even now, M-I-C-H-E-A-L. No, that's the wrong way to spell the name. No, no, it's not because there's other athletes like Michael Spurlock and Michael Furland. They also spell it E-A-L. It's not because the parents wanted to be unique. It's because the parents didn't know how to spell properly. Even Actually, I remember back in the day, sometimes kids would think my name was Mitchell. I guess the C-H for Michael was Mitchell. That seems ridiculous. But yeah, the casting was bad this season. And in no small part because Michael, M-I-C-H-E-A-L, spell it right, please. Come on, drives me nuts. I digress. I feel we should talk about uh, some happier things than getting me off my uh, soapbox here. So it's a good time to bring in my guest. Okay, now welcome on Dave Poulin, a 13-year NHL veteran and former captain of the Philadelphia Flyers. He also played for the Bruins and Capitals, was part of the Maple Leafs management team, and currently works as an analyst for TSN. Welcome to the H-Dog Pod, Dave. Thank you very much, Mike. Now, Craig Button was the guest before you, Dave, so uh, talk about a tough act to follow, eh? Wow. The resident general manager of TSN and savant on all things future hockey as well as current. Like, he has got such a great feel and a read, but puts so much time and effort into what's going to come in terms of the draft, in terms of prospects, one, two, three years down the line. And so th- those are big skates to fill. <laughs> Well, uh, I'm sure you'll you'll definitely be able to fill them. I, I wanted to discuss your start in hockey. You were a late bloomer, undrafted. How does a guy who was undrafted eventually become the captain of the Flyers? That's phenomenal. It really is a crazy story, Mike. And in, in terms of the timing of life, it's about as unusual as it gets. You know, I was born in Timmins, so didn't actually play organized hockey up there, and moved to the Toronto area, the West End of Toronto, when I was eight years old and it's funny a couple of years ago I was inducted in the Timmins Hall of Fame and so I went up to the ceremony and it was a fairly new Hall of Fame and and so you know as I'm meeting people I hadn't been up there in years and as I'm meeting people I actually stopped telling people that I didn't play hockey there 
when about the 20th person said they coached me or their brother coached me or their uncle coached me. <laughs> and so finally I just stopped telling people that I hadn't played there. I was a figure skater and it started figure skating when I was three Really, and right through till I left Timmins to come to Toronto. So never played organized hockey up there and then came to Toronto in the West end and, you know, was one of the best skaters on my house league team from the day I started because of my figure skating background. And then as much as anything through that time, through the late sixties and early seventies, it was, I was really, really tiny and it was about size. I wasn't big enough to play at the highest levels. And each year, you know, as I grew through the Mississauga Hockey League and then got into the Metro Toronto Hockey League, the MTHL, which is now the GTHL, you know, I'd be the last kid to make the team because I was so small and then I'd lead the league in scoring and then they'd say, well, you did it at the, you know, Adam level, but there's no way you could ever do it at Pee Wee. And same story the next year, you know, and eventually we got up to the highest level of Metro Toronto Hockey League and there were three of us that played as a line that traveled together for the better part of five or six years and we moved as a line you know up through the ranks to become one of the best lines in the city but once again we were all relatively small my left winger was bigger and a little more physical and sort of looked after things way back then but the irony of that Mike is that the timing was the Philadelphia Flyers and the Boston Bruins in the NHL and the Big Bad Bruins and, and Broad Street Bullies and so every minor league coach thought that's what had to be done. And so if you were too small, you weren't going to get an opportunity. So I think the satisfaction of going on and playing for those two teams in the long run, sort of like karma came back to me and, you know, the cycle was completed. Well, absolutely. And, and so before you uh, even made the NHL, you started your uh, hockey career professionally in Sweden, correct? I did. So coming out of uh, tier two junior back at that point, it was right in the transition to the 18-year-old draft from the 20-year-old draft. So if you were 17 or 18 in the city, you would still be playing, you know, provincial junior and then still have a chance to play a couple years of major junior. And all that changed with the draft through 78, 79, you know, the conclusion of the WHA and merging them into the NHL. That all happened through my draft year. And I was playing for the Dixie Beehives in Tier 2 and provincial junior. And we had, it was a typical recruiting story back then. Recruiting was all word of mouth for the U.S. colleges. And we had a really, really good player, a defenseman. who was a straight-A student. And he was getting all kinds of attention from the U.S. colleges. And that was a springboard for eventually 11 players from that CBS team in 77, 78, went to the States on scholarships. And we can all thank that player, a defenseman, who ended up going to Michigan State. So he got his letter from Notre Dame and I saw it in the locker room one day and it was a big flashy gold ND embossed in the corner of the envelope. And I said, are you, you know, are you going to Notre Dame? And he said, no, no, I'm going to Michigan state. I said, well, what are you going to do with that letter? And he said, no, you can have it if you want. So I took the letter to Notre Dame with the information sheet and wrote a nice cover letter and sent it back into them and, you know, they called me immediately because I was playing in a really good league and I had good grades. I put my grades in there. And by that point, I, I had then heard from Cornell, uh, which is a great Ivy League school in the UCAC. 
And so when Notre Dame called simultaneously, I had heard from Cornell. So they said, well, who are you talking to? And I said, well, Cornell. And then, of course, I told Cornell, well, I'm talking to Notre Dame. And that sort of steamrolled everything. And, you know, all of a sudden I had a number of schools contacting me. And, uh, and that was in probably late November of that year. And from there, it was just a full, you know, smorgasbord of U.S. colleges. And I had no idea how the system worked. And I remember taking a, a big group of letters into my high school counselor and saying, hey, could you help me with these? And he's looking at these letters from Harvard, Princeton, and Yale, and Cornell, and Notre Dame, and Michigan. And he's like, well, what are you talking about? you're not going to go to any of those schools. And I, because I wasn't a high school jock. I was, I played for my club team. So my high school didn't even know I was an athlete. And so I said, well, actually I can go to any of those schools I want to. And then he helped in the process from that point forward. But it was a, you know, it was just a very fortuitous, fortuitous situation that, you know, you end up getting a break and taking advantage of it. And, you know, probably the biggest break of my life was, getting an opportunity to, and then attending the university of Notre Dame. Right. When I was done at, at Notre Dame, I was undrafted and I had opportunities right in the spring of my senior year to join American hockey league teams. And then I had a couple offers to go to NHL camps and I chose not to take those opportunities. I stayed and graduated. And then it was Teddy Sater, a gentleman who ended up coaching in the NHL with both the New York Rangers and the Buffalo Sabres as their head coach was coaching in Sweden at the time and through a brainstorming summer camp, my name came across his desk and he called me very late in June and said, Hey, would you like an opportunity to play in Europe? And I had actually taken a job with Procter and Gamble in international sales. And so I called PG and they said, well, you know, you, you're welcome to go to Europe for a year. If you want to, that'd be great. Cause it would just enhance your international sales resume. And so I went over and I played division one, not elite series in Sweden. And Teddy was sort of the final person able to push me to a, to a whole different level. I went over and I just had a monster year in Sweden for a, a team called Rugla, R-O-G-L-E, Rugla Bandy Club, which is now an elite series team, small town in the south of Sweden. And just everything clicked from my timing and my sizing and my strength. And, and it's had a monster year. And then 62 points in 32 games. Yep. Yeah, I had, a, I had a huge, huge year and came back in late February when the season was over. And Ted Sater was also scouting Sweden for the Flyers at that point, in addition to being the coach of the Swedish team. And so he sent my name back over each month. And when I came back in late February, I joined the Maine Mariners in the American Hockey League. Unsigned, undrafted, no contract. I signed an amateur tryout offer for a few hundred bucks a week. And went into the American Hockey League to a pretty established team. And I remember my first two line mates, Mel Hewitt on the left and Dave Brown on the right. And you'd have to look at the numbers through that time. Mel Hewitt, I believe one year in the minors, had 500-plus minutes in penalties. <laughs> and Dave Brown, when I joined in late February, already had 39 major penalties in the American League that year. (laughs) (laughs) Needless to say, my first game, I had lots of room out there. I was like, holy smokes, nobody's even coming near me. And then in typical fashion in the second game, somebody on one of the first two lines got hurt and I got bumped up and lit up the American League. And another break came my way in that the Flyers were set to play the New York Rangers that year in the playoffs. 
and that was Herbie Brooks's New York Ranger team. He of legendary Olympic fame, and they were terrified of the Rangers' speed, so they were looking to increase their own speed. They were an older team at the time, and so they whisked me up to the NHL. Um, first game in Toronto against the Maple Leafs. I got called up on April Fool's Day. <laughs> if you can believe that, so you definitely thought so you Friday were. Friday <laughs> morning, yeah. Oh, Friday, April first, nineteen eighty-three. The phone rings in Duffy's Pancake House. We're all in there, heading out for a road game later in the day. And Duffy gets a funny look on his face, and he says, "It's for you." And I said, "Who is it?" And he said, oh, "It's Keith Allen, general manager of the Flyers." I'm like, "Yeah, right." He's calling <laughs> me at Duffy's Pancake House, <laughs> and so you're, you know, you're positive at that point that it's the guy who's just pulling your leg, and. uh and so I, you know, he said, you're going to be joining the Flyers tomorrow night in Toronto, but we want you to play in New Haven tonight. So I played my last American League game Friday, April 1st in New Haven, knowing I was going up to play for the Flyers against the Leafs the next night, you know, in the town I'd grown up in, in Toronto, basically Gardens, and as a Leafs fan, and, you know, walked into the building the next morning, literally through the front door of the Gardens, because I didn't even know where the Players' entrance was. I had my bag and my sticks, and you know, asking the ushers, where's the locker room? And they're looking at me like, who the heck are you? you know? <laughs> yeah. And uh, so that night, stepped on the ice, scored on my second shift, scored a shorthanded goal in the second period. And I believe I was the third star of the game and never looked back. So, you know, just a fairy tale in every way. Um, and, you know, just took full advantage of, of that opportunity. As I mentioned, like being captain of the Flyers, like that's obviously a huge deal at any point. But though those Flyers teams were amazing, and to be that must have been such an honor. And and the, the how what was the pressure like in Philadelphia to to win and uh, to be the leader of that team? Well, it was immense pressure, much self-imposed as anything. We were a team in transition when I arrived there. Bobby Clark was my teammate and roommate, and the great Flyer captain and leader, and and I was you know just a kid and absorbing every single part of what he shared with me and he was just such an unbelievable mentor for me and then after my first full year that rookie year is when Clarkie retired became the general manager and vice president he brought Mike Keenan in as the head coach a rookie head coach from the University of Toronto and you know we were just a really really young team we had a we had three kids under 20 Rick Tockett Peter Zezel and Derek Smith and it was just a time of transition and we grabbed a hold of it and and you know with with the energy that we had and the transition we had and and we made a run that year to the Stanley Cup finals my second year in the league and that that year I was named captain so my second year in the league I was captain and and you know at first I mean pressure was enormous and the pressure you put on yourself because you're like okay what do I have to do differently and you know, people are telling you, well, just do what you were doing. And that's easier said than done. But it was the leadership around me. It was guys like Mark Howe and Brad Marsh and Brad McCrimmon, the great Brad McCrimmon, who we lost far too early. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Timmy Kerr was a leader on that team. Murray Craven was a young leader on that team. Rick Tockett emerged. So it was a, a really, it was a fun team, a fun time. And arguably, we just didn't know any better. So we just played. And you said you mentioned obviously playing for a rookie coach, uh, Mike Keenan at the time. How was he to play for? I guess maybe he wasn't Iron Mike just then, so was it better, or how was it like playing for him? 
No, he was worse than Iron Mike then. He <laughs> softened into being Iron Mike. <laughs> <laughs> we had him before anybody did. You know what? It was four years, and it was constant tension and pressure. He felt that he his best way of succeeding was to have us expect the unexpected. That was his big thing. Expect the unexpected. Expect the unexpected. So anytime it got even remotely comfortable, he would try and throw a curve at us. And, and there are just, there are so many stories, Mike, that go on about, you know, he'd walk into a locker room and try and create controversy. And you'd be looking around going, no, everything's fine in here. And, you know, we had tons of success. We also had the New York Islanders in our division who were coming off four Stanley Cups, you know, their great reign. And then they lost to the Edmonton Oilers in 83 to break that string or 80, no, 84 to break that string. And as the Oilers finally won their first cup. And then, you know, we were the guys the next year that, that went on to upset the Islanders in the second round and, and blow through Montreal and then get to the uh, conference finals and then get to the finals for the first time. And, you know, the pressure you're, you're a young player and at that point you've forgotten the fact that you're undrafted and you know, you're a free agent. You're just a player in the national hockey league and you've proven yourself. And once again, the leadership that I had around me and the guys that we had were really the key to that team. And so I guess we can say that what Mike Keenan did was effective, even though he was trying to create controversy in that room. Yeah. You know what? Years later, you'll have players tell you that, that he got more out of them than what they had. I mean, he was so hard on some of those guys. And you think about guys he was hard on, Rick Talkett, you know, who's grown into, you know, one of the most admired NHL coaches probably in the league right now. Craig Berube, um, Scotty Mellenby, and guys that he just drew everything that they possibly had out that we didn't even know we had. And he took us to a different level. Was it uncomfortable? Absolutely. And, you know, and you're not sure the players of today would even stand for it, but it was effective. I mean, you can't argue with the record through those years. We went to the finals twice in his first three years and got a tremendous amount accomplished. And it wasn't comfortable, though, Mike, ever. I mean, it just wasn't. And I'll give you a story and sort of would sum up a lot of what we dealt with. Yeah. Uh, Back then, you were still allowed to skate on Christmas Eve. The only day off you got fully was Christmas Day. And then you could play again on the 26th. And so we were on a really good roll through December. And I went to him as a captain and said, look, you know, I know we're scheduled to skate Christmas Eve. Could we move this morning skate up to 8 a.m.? We played the 23rd at home. And, you know, that way guys could fly home at like 11 a.m. and get home to Toronto or wherever, you know, the close flights were, spend Christmas Eve, Christmas Day at home, and then fly back the morning of the 26th. And then we had a game in Washington the night of the 26th. So he just looked at me and he said, keep winning and we'll see. So we kept winning and we got through the 22nd. The guys went ahead and booked flights and we won on the 23rd. And then, and then so popped up early the morning of the 24th to go in for an 8 a.m. skate. Mike's practices, unlike a lot of practices at that time, were really short and hard, like really hard. 
really high paced, but relatively short. But they weren't two hours long. So we had just a great 45 minute skate. And we used to do this drill at the end of practice and it was an aerobic skate and he would put 12 pucks along center ice and you'd go for a minute in one direction and then he'd blow the whistle and he'd fire a puck into one of the nets and you'd hoot and holler and you'd go a minute in the other direction. But it was aerobic. It was 12 minutes straight. Well, guys are so hepped up at this point that it's almost anaerobic. Like it's, <laughs> you know, guys are flying around out there. And he's got a big boom box out there. He's playing Christmas carols and guys are hooting and hollering and, you know, going home for the first time as an NHL player and the young guys. And at the end of that, he called us together. He lined us up and skated us for another 45 minutes. <laughs> and it was climb the mountains. It was a scene right out of the miracle. And guys were sick. Guys were, you know, throwing up. I mean, it was just a nightmare. And now, you know, now it's getting to be, you know, 9.30, quarter to 10. Our guy's going to make their 11 o'clock flight. And, and you know, for the guys that were staying, we'd order pizza and beer in the locker room. And, and at the end, he called everybody together. And he just said, expect the unexpected. Have a Merry Christmas. <laughs> and stayed off the ice. The guys want to kill him. Yeah. And now guys are racing and, you know, racing to the airport and, but what he did was he planted the seed and all those young kids that were going home for the first time as NHL players, he wanted them thinking about him at Christmas, not about the success they'd had through the first half of the year, not about being an NHL player. He wanted them cursing him for the 48 hours they were at home. That's, and I, I yeah, that. we came back and, and we got hammered the day after Christmas by Washington, I think like six, nothing or something. And then we went on a great roll again and won a whole bunch of games. And, and so, you know, it was things like that that he did that caught us all so off balance and off guard. And, and, and that was constant. Stuff like that was constant, you know, but he just never wanted you to be comfortable. He thought you performed better if you were uncomfortable. Well, you definitely can't argue with the uh, level of success, uh, that's for sure. I want to mention a couple teammates you had, uh, get your thoughts on them. Uh, Ron Hextall. He actually was an interesting character. He was he was as calm and quiet off the ice as he was fired up and engaged on the ice. And he actually joined us under very, very difficult circumstances because he was in the American League the year that Pelly Lindbergh was killed in a car accident. So we lost Pelly Lindbergh, the great goaltender, the Vesna Trophy winner at 26 years of age in November of 1985. And they made a decision not to call Hextall up to the NHL. He was clearly our top prospect, but they left him in Hershey in the minor leagues. And I think Hershey went on to win the Calder Cup that year with Hextall as the goaltender. And we went with a goalie tandem of Bob Froze and Darren Jensen. And we were a really good team. We'd been in the finals the year before. We actually won the Jennings Trophy that year for the best goal against. And then the following year, 86-87, uh, they called Hextall up, or at the start of the year, he made the team out of camp, and he and Bobby Froze were the goalies, but Froze was the incumbent. I mean, he was going to be the guy. And I'll never never forget before the first game, we were opening the season at home against Edmonton. And uh, before the game, in the morning skate, Froze was skating around. I said, how are you doing? He said, not very good. I said, why? He said, they're playing the kid tonight. 
I said, really? We didn't even consider it. And they put Hexy in. Hexy beat Edmonton that night and just went on to have that great, great rookie year. But he was a player, and the best way to describe him, I've used this to describe other players, is Hexy was very effective in a certain bandwidth. So just picture a bandwidth, a high bandwidth of where he performed at his best. And if he got under that bandwidth, if he wasn't up to the lower level of that bandwidth, he wasn't very good. If he didn't have the emotion, he wasn't very good. And if he was over the top of the bandwidth, he was right out of control. <laughs> yeah, as we've seen a couple times. And it was in that bandwidth that he was so unbelievably effective. And so it was up to me to make sure I drove him hard enough to get him up into that area, but but then controlled him on the other side of not let him get out of the air. And <laughs> I'll give you a great story a little bit later in his career is, 89 when he had the absolute meltdown in the playoffs against Chris Chelios and it was the conference finals and Chelios had taken Brian Prop, who was our best player out of the series early with a real cheap shot and so it was the deciding game game six and we were losing I think by three goals in the third period and Hextall charged out of the net and went after Chelios and it just led to a wild melee here all over the place and you know it was just a, a free-for-all on the ice you know six on six on the ice and everyone involved and guys got kicked out of the game and I was on the ice at the time and and so the game ends Hexy had been kicked out of the game and I walk in the locker room after all the handshakes and everything I walk in and he's sitting in the corner real quietly and he looks at me and he says what I said what <laughs> What do you think? I said, you, you just caused a huge international incident out there. And he looks at me in a very calm voice and says, oh, really? I just didn't want to shake Chelios's, shake Chelios's hand at the end of the game. <laughs> <laughs> so it was like he was totally calm, totally cool. And he thought instead of shaking his hand, he'd just start, you know, a huge brawl on the ice and get everyone involved that would get him kicked out. So he wouldn't have to shake Shelly off his hand at the end of the game. And, you know, he was a, he was a guy who relied on his fire and his energy and, and, you know, and you felt that emotion as a player and you you just threw a tremendous run with us with that team. Yeah. He was definitely amazing. He also had a a fight with Felix Potvin that one of my, uh, Earlier hockey memories uh, that was amazing, and I mentioned uh, off the top, uh, you worked in the Maple Leafs management team. Uh, how was that, and how was working with uh, Brian Burke? Well, Brian and I went back a long way. Brian was my first agent, and you know when I had joined that Maine Mariners team, I didn't have an agent returning from Europe, and so I met Berkey through that team. He had played for the Maine Mariners in 1977 in their first year of existence, and won a Calder Cup there after playing for Lula Morello of Providence. And, you know, then Berkey went to Harvard Law School, graduated at the top of Harvard Law School, and then had come back and was representing a number of his former teammates. So that's how I met him. So he was my agent from 83 through 87 when he left the business the first time to go to Vancouver as the assistant GM. So we'd always kept him, kept him very close touch, you know, very close friends. And, you know, I'm thinking how many years later, 2000 and and nine when he got the Leafs job, 2008, he got it in 2009. And as I said, we've kept in very close touch 
over the years through our respective journeys in the in the life of hockey and and I called him one day and I just said, Look, I want in and I was established in a business outside of the game at that point. And he said, Oh, you're doing really well. You're living in Chicago, you know, your business is great. You sure you want to do this? And I just said yes. And I want in. So I came in as the vice president of hockey operations and eventually took over as the general manager of the Marlies and and uh, was very active in the American League as well and sort of was charged with building that group of players that ended up being, you know, Morgan Riley and Nazem Kadri and Jake Gardner and that group of young players that went through the Marley's organization and had some very good years there. We went to, to nine, we played nine playoff rounds in my last three years with that group of young, talented players. And so, it was, um, you know, it was a time of change. Berkey only uh, was there for two and a half years, and he was pushed out by a change in ownership. And so five years total, two and a half with Berkey there, and then two and a half with Dave Nonis as the GM. And then when a change was made again in management, we were essentially all pushed out, and, uh, and the career opened up on the TV side of things. Well, how's that? Just going to be my next question about the TV side of things. Uh, you've been in TSN for quite a few uh, few years now. You must uh, have some embarrassing stories or some things that you wish you could take back. Yeah, I think everybody does. But you know what? I've been pretty fortunate. I, I more or less tiptoed into it. And, you know, so after being fired by the Leafs, uh, I had opportunities to go to both Sportsnet and TSN. And I knew a few of the people at TSN a little bit better and, and made that decision. But it was just after the contract had been awarded to Sportsnet, so there were actually more opportunities in Sportsnet. TSN didn't have a lot of opportunities, but I really didn't know if I wanted to do it anyway, and so I tiptoed in, and probably my first foray in was with, with a show you're very familiar with, with TH2N, that's Hockey Tonight, the great late-night show with Glenn Sheeler hosting and Kyle Lawson and you guys all involved, and that was the group I started with and, you know, got my first real look at the inside of, of TV. You know, you'd always done interviews from the other side of it. I'd done a little bit of, of work with college sports TV when I was at Notre Dame and a little bit of work, you know, with ESPN way back when, but this was a whole different level of it. And, you know, just gradually got involved and in terms of embarrassing moments. Yeah. I've been pretty fortunate. Yeah, I really have. I have a brag. You know, I, I know, no, I, I was so conscious. I took good direction from the directors, the producers, the people I worked with. And I, I probably started more <laughs> cautiously than, than, <laughs> you know, than most do. And, uh, and I, I can't, you know, you, you get to points where have you certainly, you know, when you're working with James Duffy, he's so good at covering up whatever you do. Like, phenomenal. You know, the, the guys, they're so good. They make it look so easy. And, you know, I, I listen to the traffic that goes through his ear. And certainly there are times when you freeze up or you, you know, totally forget what you're going to say. But he can sense that. And he, he picks you up so quickly. He makes it almost seem like a part of the conversation. So from that standpoint, I think I've just been blessed with the people I work with. And, you know, back to TH2N, if I hit a snag, it was kind of lost in my ear or, or, or um, Glenn Sheeler just sitting beside me, helping me out so much that uh, that I probably skated through a lot of events that could have otherwise buried me. <laughs> and you mentioned Duffy, and it's so true. Like not only obviously he's so professional and he's outstanding at what he does, but 
he, he, he's, it's fun because he makes it, if it is a mistake or something like that, he makes it fun. If you're chatting with your buddies and someone said something off color or something weird, like, for example, the Jeff O'Neill with the ketchup, then, of course, you're going to make fun of it. And I, I love how he, he makes that. He keeps that panel uh, very fun. Yeah, he really does. The panel's an interesting mix-up. This is our, our makeup, rather. It's, it's the, is it the fourth year we've worked together, I believe. And and the third full year where we've done every panel together, Bob McKenzie and Jeff O'Neill and James and myself on the Leafs games. And really, really enjoyable. But I think it's the mix of characters involved. I've known Bobby Mack since the early 80s. He covered me when he was with the Hockey News. And I really didn't know Jeff and at all when I started working with him. And, you know, and we come from extreme opposite ends of the locker room. Like you can't get probably two players who were more different as players in terms of, you know, on and off the ice, the way they came up. I mean, he was a big hotshot draft pick. He was a goal scorer. He was offensive. He had all those talent skills. I didn't. I had to see the game a different way. But I think we've gotten to a really good place in the way that we look at games, the way we watch games together, how we break it up. You know, it's a pretty interesting process on how we put it together. And, you know, and the quiz master obviously is a huge part of that behind the scenes and how, you know, we work to put those groups together, the panels, the discussions between periods, before games, you know, the amount of work that goes into that behind the scenes from the guys that, that put it together, the producers and directors that put those shows together. And then, it's, you know, we're charged with delivering it. But I will say that we do have fun doing it. And, you know, it is a pleasure to work with pros of that quality. You talked about Duffy, what, what he's able to manage in terms of the traffic flow through his ear, producers, directors, sound guys, you know, outside guys is, is just remarkable. He does it so flawlessly. It makes it just look like, you know, he's just having another conversation. And um, he, makes it, he makes it fun to work with and, and easy to work with. Uh, without question, uh, he is a beauty for sure. Now, obviously, no games are going on right now with uh, this coronavirus uh, pandemic. I, I asked Craig of this uh, on the last podcast as well. What's, I mean, obviously we don't know in terms of time frame and everything, but what would your ideal playoff scenario be should we even get to that point? You know, as it stretches out longer and longer, you'd like to thought that we could have finished an 82-game season. Everybody would have been exactly the same. And everyone has played 68 games, I believe. So, you know, there's also been talk about taking it to whatever your record was at 68 games. With how close it is and how even if you went points percentage versus points, you'd have different teams in the playoffs. I think you'd have to have some mechanism to allow for the one or two teams that is just outside to be able to play their way in. I don't think you could go with a hard count. But I'll tell you what, the one idea, Mike, that, that really caught my interest is the playoff for the number one spot on the other side of it with the teams that don't make the playoffs. And as crazy as it sounds, I think the crazy times we're involved in allow ourselves to think way outside the box. And I would have never even considered this until I started, until I first I heard it, and then I thought about it more and more. But so the teams that weren't in the playoffs would essentially have a playoff in the other direction and to see who was awarded the number one pick on the draft. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and and, and you say, okay, the teams that are right at the very bottom, the Detroit, Ottawa, that grouping, they would get home ice, so they would get an advantage to be able to, 
you know, because they've been the worst teams, essentially now they'd get an advantage to play and earn the number one spot in the, in the draft. And can you imagine a scenario where, you know, it got down to Montreal and Ottawa to play to see who got the right to draft Alex Lafreniere? I mean, can you see a game, the market for that in those two cities or Chicago and Detroit for that matter? You know, and so that that caught my interest. And, And the reason it did is if you just went back and right in the playoffs and played the teams that, that didn't make it would be disadvantaged even more because they wouldn't have played hockey now for, you know, for close to by the time we get back to work, March, April, May, June, July, August, September, seven months. And this would let them at least play and play with something at stake. But the idea of a team winning and getting the first round pick in the draft would certainly throw a wrinkle into your thought process of winding down the season. That'd be pretty cool. I, I can't remember what it was. It was years ago in the NFL. There were two teams on, in week 17. They both were playing each other for basically the right to have the first overall pick. And obviously the team that lost would get the first pick. I can't remember the two, what the two teams were, but uh, probably the Browns. Uh, it, it, it's probably a pretty safe assumption to say the Browns. Well, if I, hope but, that, I hope that that was the case that the number two pick or the team that won that game ended up being a better player than was taken at number one. Well, that's what I mean. I, I was hoping, like, do you know how would be cool this would be if – because both teams are obviously terrible. That's why they have a chance to get the number one number one pick. If the winner of that game got the first overall pick, but of course they, did, well, they didn't do that. Point. But yeah, that would have been sweet. Yeah, yeah, it's sort of an interesting point. You know, if you if you looked at that way back when, and there was a I don't know a Peyton Manning available, and you said, okay, the winner gets Peyton Manning. Oh, man. oh God, It'd be fun, wouldn't it? And I still, I still to this day, I, I, I don't understand this at all. For the NFL, a league that more than any other league hypes up their draft and everything like that, which I love as well. A huge NFL fan, how they don't have an NFL draft lottery blows my mind. I would agree. I would agree. I would agree. Crazy. Like they could make it their own show. They can make it their whole week. They can do whatever they want with it. It stuns me that they, that they don't want that. Obviously I understand some owners would want, would want to get the first overall pick if they were the worst team, but that's any sport that um, uh, presumably right. would want that. So I don't understand why they don't do that. It's weird to me. Yeah, we know how much excitement the lottery brings here. And the fact that I believe there's been only two times that the last place team has won the lottery, at least being one of them with Austin Matthews. If I'm correct, that I think that's the case. I think so, yeah. It's always been someone who's edged up you know, and snuck in there, whether it be Edmonton or Jersey or whomever. Yeah, no, it'd be uh, it'd be a lot of fun if uh, if they were to do that with the the, the other option I saw was Detroit. Uh, like every every team basically has a chance to battle into the playoffs, which I thought was a little weird considering Detroit already was eliminated. But it, it got me thinking: how amazing would it be is if Detroit if, if that actually if that format actually came to be, and Detroit like went on some crazy magical run and went all went on the way to win the Stanley Cup? That'd be so sweet. Yeah, I'd be much more apt to do what I what, yeah. what I read about and suggested, and you know to think that you know teams that have battled all year and were right, you know, and so maybe you give the teams that are right on the verge or right on the cusp one extra shot, whatever that may be. But if you think about it, just think how different a team could be right now than they were a couple of weeks ago with injuries. You know, maybe they got somebody back. Maybe they, you know, all of a sudden somebody you know, got healthy and is a huge difference maker for them. There could be a lot of different storylines. What if St. Louis plugs a healthy Tarasenko into their lineup? How does that look? Yeah. 
you know, and a well-rested, healthy Tarasenko who's got no mileage from the year on him. Yeah, it's obviously unprecedented times, and uh, we'll see how this all plays out. Hopefully, we get back to playing games at some point, uh, and that this pandemic uh, gets controlled because it's uh, crazy times we're living in right now. That's for sure. Uh, thank you so much, Dave, for uh, taking the time to uh, be on the podcast. It was a lot of fun. You're more than welcome, Mike. My pleasure. Have a great day. You too. Take care. Thank you so much to Dave Pullen for being on the podcast. That was a lot of fun talking about his life and career in the NHL, especially some of his stories about Mike Keenan. Those were legendary. Thank you for listening to episode 12 of the H-Dog Pod. Bang. This has been the H-Dog Pod with host Michael the Hound Dog Harrison. Edited by Grant Nabesy-Roberts.